When the spirit of the Sermon on the Mount and recognizing where we are in this series, I feel compelled to confess something to you today. It's been on my heart for a couple of weeks and I need to unburden my heart now. I too hate Bucky's. <laughs> And unlike the good reverend, I have never gone to Bucky's, and so I'm consistent in my hatred, uh, perhaps even my sin by Texas standards. It might be the last thing we laugh at today because we're entering into what undoubtedly will be heavy words from Jesus words that will weigh heavily on your conscience and your heart and mine. And so with that in mind, I want us to know that we are going to tackle one of the most difficult things that Jesus ever taught. Some call it every man's battle. Some call it mission impossible. It is a teaching that confronts and challenges each and every one of us. It makes demands upon us, not only to change the outside, but also the inside. And the foundational word of the Sermon on the Mount is the word repent. Repent. Change your mind. Change your heart. Change your life. Because the king and his kingdom are drawing near. Repent. It's foundational. You've heard that Martin Luther stated, all of life is repentance. But I say to you that repentance is life, and the Sermon on the Mount is the details. Very important details, because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is instructing us on how to repent and why to repent. He's trying to change us from the inside out. But he doesn't simply call us to repent. He calls us to lament our sins and to implement deep changes in our life and even to experiment with a new way of life, the shalom life, the blessed life, the happy life. There are two beatitudes that frame Jesus' teaching on lust and adultery. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart. In other words, truly happy are the people who want to see the world put back to right. They have an insatiable and unquenchable desire to be right with God. They crave and desire God's righteousness over their own wickedness. They want the righteousness of God to shape their life and to satisfy their hearts. Truly happy are the souls who single-mindedly seek the holy life. They demonstrate on the outside what they desire on the inside. They do not treat others with mixed motives or hypocritical hearts. They do not prey on others with lust, but they do pray for them in love. Their eyes do not drift around in lust because their hearts are anchored in love. Now, why are these folks truly happy? Well, they're truly happy because... They preserve the earth and they purify the world. Like light and salt, they bring flavor and flash to life. They're truly happy because their righteousness surpasses 
the righteousness of even the most religiously pompous people whose righteousness is actually no righteousness at all. They're truly happy because they will be satisfied and they will see God. Their true happiness is bound up in the blessings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's crucial that you hold to these promises in your heart and mind as we tackle Jesus's teaching on lust and rather as we are tackled by Jesus's teaching on lust. And the reason it's important to hold on to these promises is that if you don't, you could end up helpless and harassed, wallowing in some sort of legalistic despair. And that is not my goal for you today, nor is it my desire. We come to the teaching of Jesus. We come to a difficult teaching that pierces our hearts and gets under our skin and into our lives. And it starts with Jesus opening his mouth and saying these things. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And every man and woman, every youth that has a conscience feels the weight of this in ways that words could never describe. Beyond a doubt, most of us could say, been there, done that, in one way or another. But I want you to know that Jesus does not loosen the seventh commandment. He does not relax the seventh commandment. He does not rewrite it or remove it from the canon. He simply took up all the loose and frayed threads that were around him and he rewove it. He tightened it up to help us understand not only the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. He's dealing with the seventh commandment. The scribes and Pharisees appeared to be a strict group of people. It would be easy to look at them from the outside and think, well, they have it all together. They are really scrupulous and they care very much about obedience to the law of God. And that was just part of their deception and hypocrisy. The reality is that they cared more about their traditions concerning the law than they concerned themselves with the law. They knew how to put on a good show. They were very much like many evangelicals in our day, where they would teach technical obedience to the law, but not true obedience to the law. They're concerned about what a man or woman did with their body, not so much about what they thought or felt or imagined in their heart. And so in their way of thinking, so long as you did not act on your desires in your body, so long as you did not try to play out in your life what you were imagining in your heart, you were technically obedient to the law of God, and that's what they cared about. There were some who even went so far as to say that you could involve yourself in extramarital affairs so long as you did not get involved with someone who was married outside your marriage, because then you would technically be obedient to the law of God. But Jesus comes along and he exposes the shallowness of that sort of legalistic lust and he explores the depths of a law-abiding love. 
We need to consider what is required and what is prohibited in Jesus' teaching on the seventh commandment. And rather than just make up a list for you, I want to rely on the wisdom of the Westminster Divines. Our denomination uses the Westminster Confession and Catechisms as a part of our doctrinal standards. And there is a section here that I find very helpful. Questions 138 and 139 from the larger catechism are insightful. What are the duties required in the seventh commandment? Answer, duties required in the seventh commandment are the following. Chastity in body, mind, affections, words, and behavior. The preservation of chastity in ourselves and others. Watchfulness over our eyes and all the senses. Temperance and keeping of chaste company. Modesty in apparel, the way you dress. Marriage by those who do not have the gift of abstinence with conjugal love and cohabitation and shunning all occasions of uncleanness and resisting temptations to it. Those are the positive requirements. And then they go on to talk about negative prohibitions. What are the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment? Answer, sins forbidden in the seventh commandment are as follows. Adultery, fornication, rape, incest, homosexuality, and all unnatural lusts, all unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and desires, all corrupt or filthy communications or listening to them, unrestrained looks, brazen, shameless, or seductive behavior, immodest apparel, prohibiting lawful marriages and allowing unlawful marriages, allowing, tolerating, or running places of prostitution or visiting or using them. And in our day, we would say that includes websites and apps and cable channels, undue delay of marriage, having more wives or husbands than one at the same time, unjust divorce or desertion, unchaste company, meaning promiscuous friends with so-called benefits, lewd songs, pictures, books, dances, or stage plays, including some of the movies and series that you might enjoy, and all other provocations to uncleanness or acts of uncleanness, either in ourselves or others. And there's more besides. Now, I recognize that that is a lot to take in at once. So go back and revisit Larger Catechism 138 and 139 if you'd like to see in more detail what the divines were getting at. The point that I'm trying to make is that Jesus said more than meets the eye or the ear in this brief passage that we have heard. By condemning the looking at a woman with lustful intent, Jesus was taking aim at our abuse and misuse of natural sexual desire. And if Jesus is going to take aim at our misuse and abuse of natural sexual desire, what do you think he would do with our unnatural sexual desires? What do you think Jesus would say about the sexual desires between a man and a man, or a woman and a woman, or an adult and a child? These questions must be raised because we live in a time and place in which these questions are at the forefront of conversation. 
They're all over your social media. They're in your workplace. They're in the news. And so we need to take the sexual ethics of Jesus far more seriously than perhaps we imagined. Now, it's at this point in the sermon when some pastors would likely go for the kill shot, as we like to say. And what that means is they would go for the kill shot by doing lots and lots of guilt tripping and fear mongering and finger pointing and brow beating and life shaming. And Jesus hates that sort of thing. And so do I. And so I'm not going to do it. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And we, along with Jesus, are more interested in life than in death. And I imagine that some of you already feel like you're dying on the inside at this point in the sermon. So can I say to you, Please hold on for just a bit longer. Hang in there. Hang in there because life is coming. You and I know enough about people and we know enough about life to know that everyone within earshot today is being, has been, or will be affected by sexual immorality. Not just in one way but in many ways, in many terrible, painful, difficult ways. The only thing I want to touch on today of all the things we could touch on is pornography. Not because it's the low-hanging fruit, but because it's likely the area that has affected most of us in one way or another. Pornography has been called the scourge of our time, a silent cancer of the soul, a plague of technology, an epidemic of global proportions, a new drug. The porn industry exists because man's heart is evil and men manufacture all kinds of ways to sin. The porn industry thrives because lust craves it and invests in it. The lies Involved in it seems so real and true. Sex sells, and it is extremely lucrative. According to various reports and news outlets just in the last couple of weeks, pornography has become a $100 billion industry worldwide. Lust claims that love without sex is impossible and that sex without love satisfies. And both of those claims are wrong. In his book, Steering Through Chaos, Oz Guinness points out that sex is everywhere in our world. There are fewer and fewer places you can go or see or enjoy without being assaulted, bombarded, or confronted by sexual imagery. He says, modern advertisers have capitalized on lust in ways never before thought possible. The cult of sexual pleasure and physical beauty has, made, has been made integral to identity, clothing, lifestyle, and status in our sex-crazed, sex-obsessed culture. Undoubtedly, many of you have heard that it was said, accessorize your assets. Once upon a time, sociologists were warning us that we were amusing ourselves to death. And over the last three decades... 
during what we might call the technological revolution. They've been warning us that we were amazing ourselves to death. But in recent years, they began, they've begun to warn us that we are arousing ourselves to death. As bad as all of this seems, I want to remind you that there is nothing new under the sun. Lust has been in the world wrecking lives from the very beginning. And to prove that point and support it, I want to take a few I want us to take a few stories from the Old Testament to refresh our memories. Let's look at a couple of snapshots, will you? When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. They were deceived by lust and deported from paradise. Samson, the mighty judge and savior of Israel, had a weakness for beautiful women. He did whatever seemed right in his own eyes. On more than one occasion, his own eyes led him astray. But when the secret of his great strength was revealed, he was taken captive. His eyes were gouged out, and he was bound in bronze shackles. He was deceived by lust and utterly debilitated. Amnon, one of David's sons, was so tormented by lust that he made himself sick and haggard with it day after day. He even tricked his half-sister into visiting him privately. He forced himself on her. And despite her many loud protests and physical resistance, he would not listen to her or leave her alone. He overpowered her and violated her and lay with her. And afterwards, he despised her and sent her away and locked her out of his life. He hated her because he hated himself. And what happened to her? She was utterly abandoned, ashamed, and traumatized for the rest of her life. And he was deceived by lust and destroyed. Ezekiel the prophet saw a vision of the elders of Israel gazing upon vile images in the secrecy of their private rooms. The Lord said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? And why were they doing it? Because they say, the Lord does not see us. But he who searches the hearts sees and knows the truth about every man. They were deceived and they were defrocked from the service of the Lord because of their lust. Now I share these stories knowing that some of you feel the weight of these things. You have lived through them. And they're heartbreaking stories. Some of you live with the agony and the shame and the guilt and the remorse and the grief that comes with all of these things. I'm not trying to reopen old wounds. I'm not trying to pour salt in your wounds. I'm simply trying to point out that lust is a deceitful, destructive, and deadly sin for all of us. 
men and women, young and old. It affects us all. Jesus says everyone who looks at another image bearer with lustful intent has already broken faith, violated a covenant with them in his heart. Jesus is not saying that it's wrong to notice that someone is attractive or handsome. That's not his point. The scriptures tell us that Sarah, Rachel, and Abigail were beautiful women, and David was handsome and ruddy. There's nothing wrong with acknowledging the beauty and the diversity that God has made and created in the world. Jesus' point is that it is wrong to notice that and then go beyond that to dwell on it and fantasize about those people to dehumanize them and treat them as objects of personal sexual pleasure. As Peter Lighthart put it, Jesus condemns the intentional and purposeful gaze that cultivates lust and arouses evil desire and stirs up the heart to violate God's law. It's the same kind of gaze associated with looking at or watching pornography. In the past, our forefathers in the faith called lust one of the seven deadly sins, and they often depicted it in this way as a person or a creature with large, bulging, bloodshot eyes. Think Gollum stroking his precious ring. And then think of Gollum in the 21st century scrolling through images on his precious phone. And that's what gazing with lustful intent looks like. We know that lust is a problem, that it touches us all, it affects every one of us. But what do we do with it? How can we change things? Is there a way out? Well, Jesus calls for radical surgery, doesn't he? Jesus calls for radical surgery. He says, if your right hand causes you to sin, I'm sorry, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell." Now, if you use your imagination as you listen to this, you will see the violent, the bloody, painful, and gruesome nature of this council. Radical corruption requires radical action. Now, people have listened to this teaching and approached it in different ways. Some have taken it literally. Others have taken it metaphorically. Those who have taken it literally have actually mutilated and maimed their physical bodies because they were trying to take Jesus at his word. And there are some wild and crazy stories from church history about people who have done this very thing. Other people have taken it metaphorically, and they say that Jesus means something like, get rid of things that cause you to stumble. Things that trigger lust in your life, things that disorder and confuse your love. Cut out things like certain kinds of movies or music or get rid of social media or the internet or maybe get rid of your smartphone and use a dumb phone or maybe change some of your friendships. And I want to say to you that these are all good things to do. They are right and necessary for some of you to do, and you've been putting up resistance to doing them. 
And I say they're right and good because these are practical and even necessary ways to help you deal with the symptom of your lust, the symptom of your lust. But you got to know that they provide no help in conquering the lust of the eye or the lust of the heart. And so whether you take Jesus's words literally or metaphorically, let me give you some advice here. That whether you cut off your hand or gouge out your eye or cut out the internet or gouge out your smartphone or cut out time at certain times, of the, cut out the gym at certain times or cut off vacations at the beach, you will still be left with the heart of the problem, which is the problem of the heart. Jesus's deeper point here is that we need to do more than reconfigure our flesh more than just change the outside of our life. We've got to find a way to change the inside. We need to recalibrate our hearts and our lives. We need to repent from the heart. And we need a new heart because the king and his kingdom are drawing near. You often wonder what the Lord wants you to do with your life. You're that kind of person. You wonder as you look at the future, what does God want me to do? Take this job do this with my family, buy this house, move to this town? What does he want me to do with my life? And we ask, what is God's will when it comes to big things? We're looking for the big decisions of life. But there are some basic and fundamental things that often get overlooked, and here's one of them. The Holy Spirit clearly says in God's word that it is God's will that you should be sanctified. What does that mean? It means that you should avoid sexual immorality in all of its forms. It means that you should learn to control your own vessel, your own body in a way that is holy and honorable to God, not in chaotic passion like people who do not know God. It means that you should not mistreat or take advantage of any brother or sister in Christ sexually emotionally, physically, or in any other way. Why? Because the Lord will punish all who commit such sins, as you have undoubtedly been warned before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Now for all of you who are feeling the burn in your conscience, the burden of guilt, the baggage of shame, or feeling the bondage of your addictions. Because you know what you've done, you know what's been done to you, you know what you can't overcome, you know how you've trespassed and trampled God's law, you know that you've committed sexual sins in your heart and perhaps even in your body, you know that you've been promiscuous in spirit, if not in the flesh. If that describes any of you or catches any of you in that net, I want you to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. I want you to hear the gospel that I'm about to proclaim to you. That there is a way out of your slavery and into his salvation there is a way out of bondage into blessing. There is a way out of death into life. 
And I want you to know that what I'm about to tell you does not take away your responsibility at all. Not letting you off the hook. You are still required by Christ to repent your sins and obey the gospel. But I'm trying to give you something that will deepen your love and affection for Christ. Something that will turn you away from your lust and yourself. Something that will move your heart, reorder your affections, that will move you to repentance and obedience. What I'm about to tell you is the truth of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And although it's hard for us even to imagine losing one part of our body in order to save our whole body, even though it's hard for us to imagine what it would be like to enter heaven maimed or mutilated in some way, Jesus wants us to imagine it. He wants you to think of yourself in that way. What do you look like without one of your eyes? What do you look like with a missing hand? What do you look like if you've taken his teaching seriously? He wants you to count the cost, to feel the weight of his teaching. But above all of that, Jesus wants you to see that he practiced what he preached. Jesus practiced what he preached. This is not theory. This is practice. It's dogma for him. Jesus hungered and thirsted for righteousness every day of his life. And he hungered and thirsted for righteousness so much that he decided that it would be better for him to die than to sin. And that's what he did. He lived hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and he died hungering and thirsting for righteousness, which means that he lived and he died with a holy discontentment, a holy dissatisfaction, a holy desire in this life that could not be satisfied by anything in this world. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Jesus was handed over to religious leaders and political rulers to be falsely accused and condemned to death. He was stripped and beaten and flogged and crucified, mocked and shamed. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind that he was like one from whom men hid their faces. Jesus was despised, pierced, and rejected. He was crushed. He was gouged out and cut off from the land of the living. And in the end, when all was finished, he breathed his last. He descended into hell, maimed and mutilated by the passion and crucifixion that he had just endured. The third day he rose again from the dead, and 40 days later he ascended in the clouds and entered heaven alive, bearing the scars of his suffering and sacrifice in his whole body. For your sake, it was better for Jesus to lose some flesh and blood to lose some sweat and tears at the cross, to go into heaven scarred, maimed, and wounded than to save his whole body and to go into hell never to come back out again. Jesus was pure in heart and committed no sins and became our sin bearer in order to sprinkle our hearts clean 
and wash our bodies with pure water. He was pure in heart so that we might become pure in heart, so that we might see the face of the living God. Now with the person and work of Christ echoing in your ears and portrayed before your waking eyes, I ask you, what would you rather see? Another pornographic image? Another erotic film? Someone else's spouse? Someone who doesn't belong to you? Or would you rather see the face of the true and living God? Truly happy are the pure in heart because they will see God. And if the promise of seeing God is not enough to move you to repentance and obedience, nothing will. So let this promise of the beatific vision propel you forward through the muck and mire of your own sin and weakness and push you away from death and pull you towards life that is truly life. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your name. And we ask you to direct, sanctify, and rule both our hearts and our bodies in the ways of your laws and in the works of your commandments, that through your protection, here and ever, we may be preserved body and soul through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.